Hello everyone, and welcome back to another lunch break with Kyle. I'm Kyle, and I have um, again my brother-in-law in on today, on today, in today. He's in the house on the air. Hello. Always a pleasure to speak with you, Kyle. McKay Hammerstrom. That's me. That's his name. I wish I hadn't said my last name. Now I'm gonna get doxxed. Ooh, sorry. Just McKay H. <laughs> <laughs> so we were talking about the last episode which I really enjoyed. Shout out to Andrea. Does she listen to this? Do you think she'll listen to this, ep- to this episode? Maybe. If I tell her that she's in it, she'll probably listen to it. Oh, that that's good. Uh, because it talked about, or you guys talked about the green slime. Mm-hmm. And all I could think of was the SpongeBob episode with Nosferatu. You know, oh, and the walls ooze green slime. Oh, wait, they always do that. <laughs> <laughs> the Krusty Krab. Now, I just watched the OG Dracula movie from 1931. One second. Okay, go ahead. But, it, oh, by the way, it's an awful film. It has not stood the test of time. This and, is a black and white one, right? Yeah, from 1931. Yeah. Yeah, where it's Bela Lugosi. So Bela Lugosi, I think, makes a pretty good Dracula. Uh, he's definitely a striking figure. Because they did a remake in the 90s with, with Keanu Reeves. Yeah, I mean, they've remade it. Uh, like Christopher Lee, the guy who's Count Duke and Saruman, right? He was in the Hammer films dracula so yeah, yeah, dracula's yeah. just been really popular on screen so is frankenstein and i've also seen the the first real dracula movie um but dracula was under copyright at the time so they renamed it nosferatu it was a german production and bram stoker's widow she sued under copyright and she won and so they had to wow. stop it but anyway um i didn't think that a german expressionist silent film would be better it absolutely was. I mean, just geez. Yeah, save yourself the time. Don't watch the OG Dracula. Um, go watch Nosferatu, I guess. Well, I you probably won't like it, but I don't know. It's, it's not too bad. <laughs> if you enjoy film and the, uh, I don't know the art of it, I guess. Yes. The beginnings of art. Yes. Of film. Go watch it. Yes, but if you just if you want to watch something scary, don't watch that. <laughs> yeah, I always admire the first stuntmen. When it comes to the silent films. Oh yeah, like how Buster Buster Keaton would do his own stunts. Yeah, and... on like a moving train. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't I haven't watched any of those, but a philosophy podcast I listen to, History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps. The guy who does it loves Buster Keaton films, and so he always references them. Yeah, just a total, you know, awesome dude just risking his life for a movie. Yeah, uh, there are some pretty wild stories surrounding some of those and the budgets and. The havoc it wreaked on the small town, but maybe for a different podcast. True. We're here to do Ethics Part 2, The Revengeance, or <laughs> the Electric Boogaloo, whatever you want to call it. The Revenge of Ethics. <laughs> so, Revenge I rem- Ethics. Yeah. Okay, anyway, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember we talked about virtue ethics. I think we talked about hedonism. Yeah. And I think we talked about divine command, ethics, theological volunteerism. We just talked about how really those have some problems with them. So divine command theory definitely just doesn't feel, a lot of people don't think it's getting off the ground, myself included. Uh, same thing with hedonism where it just, it just, you know, sometimes there are things that you know that you should do even though you want to do something else and that thing would make you feel really good. So it, it just doesn't seem like it can be the fact that all good is just pleasure. Like that is what we're aiming towards. It's just pleasure. Right. Which is what hedonism says. We talked about virtue ethics, and I want to talk about it again. Just a quick recap for those who may not have listened to the first one. Virtue ethics, that's the idea that you should live a virtuous life. 
flourishing life and that a virtue is a disposition to act in a certain way in a certain time. And so, you know, there's a lot of different ways to define this. I'm really only painting with the broadest of brushstrokes, but the idea being that you should do the right thing at the right time with the right feeling. So there's a, there's a famous dialogue. It's called the Tusculum Disputations by Cicero. And he doesn't think that the Aristotelians have much. And he says, yeah, I mean, you should never be angry. You know, that's never really justified. We won't get into the details of that, but the Aristotelian position isn't that, look, you shouldn't be angry. Rather, it's, you know, you're going to be angry. The question isn't whether you're going to be angry or if you should stop that. It's what should you be angry at? If you see injustice, you should be angry at that. You shouldn't be angry at, you shouldn't be happy at injustice and think, oh, this is great, you know? So there's a kind of emotional training that goes on. And yeah, the question is, what is the good life? What kind of life do I want to live? Um, and people today, if they have a problem with virtue ethics, usually it's, well, it's nice that I'm thinking what kind of a person should I be, but I also want to think what should I do? Not just what kind of a person should I be? Now, I think that we should probably ask ourselves both questions, and I think most philosophers agree with that anyway. Uh, trying to think if there's anything else that we should think of with virtue ethics. I think it's really, it's, when you think of ethics, that's probably the first thing you think of is yeah. virtue ethics. Yeah, and I mentioned before, this just seems to be the default of civilizations. Like you go, you read the Iliad, and uh, we wouldn't think that people like Agamemnon or Achilles are particularly virtuous in a moral way, but they do have qualities of excellence. Right. So, yeah, let's transition, though, to relativism. So, I think. Relativism has a lot of strength these days. It's the idea that morality is in some way not objective. There are tons of different ways of defining it, but here are the two famous ones that you would get in a beginning ethics class. One is cultural relativism, and the other is individual relativism. It's also called subjectivism, like the subject, me, and what I perceive as right Because or wrong. it's subjective to them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So cultural relativism, I mean, Think that your listeners have probably heard of the term at least and that's the idea that what's right or wrong what makes something right what makes something wrong are cultural values so this has some appeal in the sense that it's very explanatory mm -hmm. right um, the ancient greeks encounter this pretty quickly as a seafaring people there's a great ode that pinned i think it's an i think it's an ode that pinned our rights where he says that Namas. Namas is the king of all. Namas means law, but also means custom. He's saying, like, yeah, it's just custom. And there's a story in Herodotus where Indians, and uh, by that I mean residents of the Indian subcontinent, they just talk about how they treat their dead and the way that the Indians do it are completely different, and it freaks out the Greeks, and then the Greeks tell the Indians, and it freaks them out. And so Herodotus just shrugs his shoulders and quotes the Pindar poem and says, yeah, you know, it is just all culture, whatever, right? So like I said, there's a bit of an intuitive sense in which we think that this is correct and that even if you're from opposite sides of the same country, the United States, there may be differing cultural practices. Uh, you know, it's been said that if you throw your trash in the wrong place in San Francisco, you get a dirty look, <laughs> right? But if you do that in, uh, you know, the backwater of Texas, I don't think anyone cares. They probably, they might not even have recycling, you know? Right. I mean, I, I do often think when someone has a um, a very stark or maybe sometimes radical viewpoint my first question for myself that i want to ask them is have they traveled yeah have they lived anywhere else yeah just recently i found out 
uh, talking to a coworker of mine, and um, this person, well, her spouse, has only lived in Utah and New Mexico, and hasn't really traveled anywhere else. Did that person set foot in the Navajo Nation? That, that's a different place. They did not. No. Mm. Boring part of boring part of New Mexico, and so without the like kind of life experience and us seeing other other people are, you know, raised perhaps in different religions or cultures or. Mm. Um, even as, you know, Stark is a different country or, um, you know, like Navajo Nation, right? We'd be completely different. Yeah. They have some views that I sometimes think are incomplete because they haven't experienced enough or at least learned about other countries or other cultures enough. Yeah. And I think that this is playing to the idea of how intuitive it is that there's a kind of naivete that comes with not having traveled or even mm -hmm. not with having read. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people could just probably sit down and watch a few Netflix documentaries and learn a bunch about different cultures. I think that's yeah. fair. Um, but it goes to, to uh, there is something about traveling to a different area for a period of time or living in a different area for a long period of time and experiencing that. It's just that much more different. It's like the difference between a movie and a book. Harry yeah. Potter books are are you know really good. Movies are pretty good. They're both pretty good, but they're also different. Yeah. Now, Kyle and I have both lived in a foreign country and, and learned a foreign language, the same foreign language in the same country, although yeah. I got uh, to experience three others in addition. But even then, yeah, different side of the country completely yeah. and two different countries as well. Well, and it's true. I mean, the difference between even Germany and Austria would be mm -hmm. pretty big. Like The difference <laughs> between West Germany and former East Germany. East Germany, yeah. And so we have these cultural differences, and we all recognize that they're there. Americans in particular, and I actually really love this about uh, about our culture, is that we, we tend to have a bit of a naive view of humanity where you think, yeah, you just scratch the surface and we're all kind of the same. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of other people don't share that view, but I don't know, I think there's something to it. Maybe it's because of an American, right? Yeah, but, I but, mean, I think it's a, and, um, the underlying feeling that anyone can make it into America. No, that's true. Anyone. But, but also... Any, any part of the earth. But also, you know, we're founded on some enlightenment principles, and even if we didn't always hold them, it's the idea that, yeah, you know, what makes us human is a reason, and we all have that, and, and blah, 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 that kind mm -hmm. of a sense. But, uh, well, that, and we're also a country that's been made through several different ways of immigration and so on, and our culture has been created through that. The difference, though, with cultural relativism is it's not going to say, hey, there are cultural differences, you know. Um, I don't have my pinky up when I drink my beverage but you do or we drink coffee in america and you drink tea in the uk um, i don't drink tea myself but point being right that i don't think people are going to give moral judgments They're not going to say oh well it's wrong that you drink that or uh, you know or, or you should have your pinky out right there are different levels of politeness the thing that's really disconcerting about cultural relativism that says, no, what makes something right or wrong is your culture. Mm -hmm. So a famous example is uh, what's called female circumcision. Some people refuse to call it that. They call it female genital mutilation. We won't go into the procedure. It's really ghastly. It's awful and that's uh, terrible. So and a lot of Western countries have declared war on it. But there have been some anthropologists who say, well, listen, this is their culture. You can't, you know, who are we to say what's right and what's wrong? This is what they do. It's a part of becoming a woman is going through this procedure. And I think that's when a lot of people say, okay, I, I just can't believe that a culture could 
that any culture could ever make something like this right. This right. is painful. It's shameful. There, are, there's, yeah, we won't get into it on the podcast. This is a family podcast, I guess, but it, it's really just awful. But it is at least one example of a stark cultural difference that could be seen either morally right or morally wrong. I know there was a, a tribe found in Papua New Guinea, and they practice cannibalism. Yeah, that's another great example. Uh, we actually have a an essayist, Montaigne. He's the guy who invented the essay, and he has a famous essay on cannibalism where he talks about the pros and cons and things about that. Now, like I said... Biggest con? Genghis Khan. <laughs> no, I said biggest con. Oh, biggest con. I thought you said Genghis Khan, and I thought, yeah, it's another example well, of... Genghis Khan, yeah, that's you know, good uh, Doing all the bad things he did. Yeah, um, anyway. But, you know, he created a pretty big empire. That's, that's not nothing. So this is where people... A lot of people in our day and age, because in America and in the West generally, we like to be tolerant. We think that we should be tolerant. We should be respectful of other people's cultures. Right. That we say, well, you know, that's what you guys do, and this is what we do, and whatever. And that starts to break down because then you start realizing something. Well, tolerance, that's a moral position, right? Tolerating one thing versus another, this is a moral position. We're not, we don't seem to be saying, hey, we should be tolerant because our, our culture tells us to be tolerant. We seem to be saying you should be tolerant because that's something that good people do or because that's going to have the greatest benefit mm-hmm. or because you have a duty to be respectful to other people, right? So. When people say, well, you know, you need to tolerate other people's beliefs, you say, well, do I have a duty to do that? And so on. And then you start to get into this idea that, hey, maybe it's not all just relative, right? So this is um, this is um, an interesting idea, this cultural relativism. And like I said, I encounter this. I'm a little disturbed at how I encounter this in high schoolers and freshmen at college where they just say, well, yeah, I mean, like, who, who can really say what's right and wrong? And it's pretty easy to show that people don't actually believe that. So female genital mutilation is a good example. Slavery is another one. You mm-hmm. say, hey, is slavery okay? Like, hey, that's what your culture does. But, you know, mine doesn't like it so much. People say, no, slavery's wrong. It's like, yeah, I mean, what about just, like, torturing kittens for fun? You know, you just, you just stomp on them and you're like, this is great, you know. And people can say, hey, look, I don't really care what your culture is. <laughs> that, that's wrong. You right. can't do that. And so on. So it, it, I feel like it doesn't take much. There are some other problems, though, like what's the culture? So I'm from California, right? Uh, but I belong to a, sp- a specific religious group. But, I'm, but I majored in something. And what I'm pointing to here is that which culture do I belong to? I'm an American. I'm from the Western United States, from California. Well, which culture is the one that wins? Or if I'm thinking, well, what do I do? It's like, what do I do as an American? Well, what do I do as a Californian? Yeah, but what do I do as a member of, of my church? Yeah, but what do I do as, as someone who aspires to be a philosopher? That you just keep going down the sub, 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 sub cultures, and it's not clear which culture, you, which, which, which culture, is not do you just belong to, but which culture is the one that's saying what's right and what's wrong? What, what takes priority? So that's cultural relativism. Let's talk about one that's even more disturbing, and that's subjectivism. This is individual relativism. That's what... More disturbing than what we just talked about? I think so. I mean, I want to talk about... Well, we can talk about one more thing with... No, no, let's talk about subjectivism, and then I'll talk about another one that I don't like. So subjectivism is the idea that the individual determines what's right and what's wrong. Now, the thing is, is that a lot of people think, well, 
Yeah, I mean, who's to really say what's moral, what's not moral? Yeah, I'm a subjectivist. No, you're not. You, you're probably just a moral nihilist where you think that nothing's really moral. If you're a moral subjectivist, you're saying, what I do, what I think, what I say, that's what's moral and immoral. But it only applies to me? I feel like it shouldn't take much to see why that doesn't work. Because, you know, you need to follow a code of ethics that you come up with until you change that code whenever you want. Because it's you, you, you're the one who's determining it. So it's going to I mean, be... if you've never encountered anyone in your entire life, I guess that would maybe work. But no yeah. one ever does that. Well, and this is the thing. Morality, by its nature, just seems to be deeply interpersonal, right? And subjectivism yeah. really just flies in the face of that, where it seems like my relationship to you as a fellow human being, as a fellow American, mm -hmm. as my brother-in-law, um, as a member of my church, all these things may or may not have a different way of impinging on my actions, right? It doesn't seem like it, or it doesn't seem to me at least, that I just make it up, you know? Um, Did I tell you about this guy in my institute class? <laughs> the flat earther? The flat earther. Yeah, yeah, you mentioned in the episode. Yeah, he brought it up. We had our meeting again on Friday, and he had his poster behind him again, and he brought it up again. <laughs> He's just pushing it on everyone, and my teacher had to be like, okay, that's enough comments for today. <laughs> oh, jeez. Well, that's pretty funny. Now, something else that's interesting that, I, that we should bring up is that moral relativism, just generally, that tends to conflate moral beliefs with moral facts. Mm -hmm. So let's say that in the United States in, oh, I don't know, 1811, that most Americans believe that slavery is moral. If you're a cultural relativist, you say, okay, well, it's moral. Whereas a lot of people would say, well, no, they, you know, these Americans just think it's moral. Whereas relativists, relativists seem to think that, yeah, if you believe something, that's what makes it moral. And that gets kind of weird. We tend to think that something else doesn't. So with virtue, we think, well, it's what makes for a good life. And that's what makes it moral, right? And you acting in that way so that you can be an excellent person. That's what makes it moral. Mm. So you're going to have problems with that. To me, what really gets me is that moral progress is just out of the window. So I'd like to think, for instance that when the 13th Amendment is passed in the United States, that the United States makes a pretty big leap morally yeah. Yeah. in our culture, that the abolition of slavery, that's a great thing, and so on. That when Martin Luther right, nails the 95 Theses, that there's some moral shifts going on. You can yeah. talk about the progress, the regress, or if things stay the same but are just different. But if you're a cultural relativist, there's no moral progress. Slavery wasn't right or wrong. It was just a different belief, right? I think a lot of people would think that that just doesn't seem to be correct. Yeah. You know, when the Ten Commandments are revealed, something's different. You know, right. So I think that that's worth hammering in because a lot of people these days just seem to think, yeah, how can we tell? Who's to really say? But that doesn't. I almost think also people just ask these rhetorical questions because they also don't know what to answer or they don't want to yeah. face an answer. You know. They'll just be like, well, who, who, am, I who am I to say? I just live my life. And yeah. then they move along. I'm like, you can share an opinion. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is how we, we progress as a community yeah. or as a neighborhood or as a family is that when you openly and freely share your opinions and it's yeah. heard. Yeah. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that 
for all kinds of reasons in American culture right now. We don't want to come off as judgmental. But again, that only seems to apply to certain things. Don't want to be canceled, man. Well, that's definitely true. But again, once you start talking about slavery and discrimination on the basis of sex or religion Mm -hmm. or race, then suddenly people have these really strong moral opinions. I think, "Mm, I think we are to say, I think we can say, in other words, what's moral and what's not. Yeah, switch it to those extreme, and they, there is some collective agreement there. Yeah. Even even across borders and countries. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, the other alternative is a moral nihilism, where you just think that nothing's good or nothing's evil, right? And I think it's pretty hard to look at something like the Holocaust and say, look, that wasn't right, that wasn't wrong. I just, mm-hmm. you know, it, it makes me feel bad, but it wasn't any, there wasn't anything wrong. You know, I think people look at something like that and say, yeah, that's wrong. And I don't just mean this as a feeling I have. I mean, I'm making a judgment here. Right. So any other questions about uh, cultural or individual relativism? I mean, the cultural stuff, I immediately just think of Israel and Palestine. That's actually a pretty good example. Which I'm not not sure we should dive too deep into that because I'm not a huge expert into it. But a lot of people are sharing their opinions when I, I don't think necessarily they have the best perspective. Well, that could be said for a lot of things, of course. Yes, of course. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, well, like, and for, the fact recently that... there was a missionary that I served with from, that was served in Germany with me. Oh, nine. And oh, nine. she posted this huge thing about, you know, free Palestine. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, you got to be careful. Because of the atrocities you did see in Germany in those concentration camps. Yeah. I I personally, I mean, that was still pretty recent for that Jewish culture. It's pretty recent for the Germans that we taught and yeah. we, we talked with. I met, well, I'm sure you did too, but people who, you know, they were young when it happened, but who lived through it. Oh, the effects are still there though. Yeah, you know? it's true. So I feel like... I don't know. Yeah, well, and the fact that no one's talking about Iran's role in all of this in the pop in the popular thing that mm-hmm. and all that when you think that Iran is the Yemen, one who's really trying to Jordan. Yeah, but the fact that Iran really wants to be the dominant power in the Middle East and what would stop that? Well, Israel becoming friends with Saudi Arabia, and so you should just push Hamas to and blah blah blah. Anyway, anyway, no, I, I think that's that's true. Let's talk about uh, a so, different moral theory for those listening. Just Listen to what we talked about and apply it to whatever situation you want to. <laughs> That's just what's current right now. Yeah. But it may not be current in three months. Well, and a lot of what we're talking about, there's a bit of a question mark when it comes to the actions of states. So that's one criticism of virtue ethics, for instance, and that is, well, look, it makes sense to me that how I should act, I should try to resemble Jesus Christ or Gandhi or Buddha or Albert Schweitzer or Mother Teresa, right? But or my or or my mom, your my mo- dad, your mom, yeah, my, yeah. my great parents, uncle, your, your, my grandma, your grandparents, yeah. the prophet, the pope, mm-hmm. first lady, whatever, right? It gets a little bit bit more difficult when you talk about the actions of nation states. Like, what would a virtuous nation, not a virtuous polity, a group of people, but is there such a thing? Can virtue ethics really help there, and so on? Well, the UK just dominating everything around the world, right? Yeah, and then twenty five percent. That's the world's lot. land. Yeah, that's that's a bit. 
Mm-hmm. Is that funny? I don't know if it's real, but let's say it is for the purposes of this podcast. Is that funny infographic that says, here's a list of countries that the UK has not at one time invaded, or there's just England, right? Let alone the UK. And, you know, Liechtenstein is one of them. <laughs> it's just, there's just not many places that they haven't at least fought a little bit. Right. So here's another major way of thinking about ethics, and that's something called deontology. So it comes from Greek deon, which means it is necessary or it is bound. And um, logia is rational count of. So it's the study of duty is usually how that's translated. As far as the Greek goes, I think there could have been a better way of translating it, but whatever, right? So this is usually seen as beginning with Kant. There are people who have started, who you, whom you could point to as being influential, the Stoics in particular, maybe Socrates, um, just in the West. But this is the idea that when it comes to morality, it's really a question of duty. Yes, it's nice to be a good person, or, or that's, that's a not an insignificant part of morality, but what makes an action moral or immoral is whether or not you have a duty to do it. Uh, I'll talk about Kant because he's the guy that I know the best, but there are other ways of thinking about it. Kant just is very, very famous. Mm. So he's got something called the categorical imperative. And by the way, Kant, he just talks like a philosopher. I've mentioned this before, but he's just, he's the best in that respect. So he assumes that humans are free and that humans are rational. They don't have to be rational every time and every choice, but they have the power of reason. Doing that, they're able to figure out what their duty is by deducting whether or not something that they would will, will, like make a choice, like I want this to happen, right? Mm -hmm. That creates a logical contradiction by, oh, I don't know, like say you're like, hey, I want to make a promise and then break it, and then Kant says, well, hold on, could you rationally will that without producing a contradiction? You Okay, well, let me think. So if every time I were to lie, or, or rather, if I think it's okay to lie, when I want something, what if everyone else acted like that? Well, then people wouldn't keep promises and, you know, we just couldn't live like that. We wouldn't get society off the ground and all that. And he says, okay, you, you produced a contradiction. That's not going to work. So doing things like that, you can use your reason power, your reason, your reasoning powers, reason powers. That sounds like a superpower. It does. <laughs> you can use your, are you sure? Oh, uh, no, I'm not. <laughs> you can use your, your reason. powers of reason to figure out what your duty is. As long as we're talking about this, Kant thinks that the only thing that makes an action good or bad is that it's done with a moral will. So, so is that a moral will or duty to... Or goodwill, I should say. To a community or a public, or is it to yourself? Anything. Anything. So... so people were like, you know, it's, it's my duty to, you know, to, to serve my country. People were like, it's my duty to um, be this athlete because I'm, you know, that's what, what I was made, made to do. No, Kant Kant doesn't think that that has, well, that probably, Kant would probably say that that doesn't have a moral aspect. Okay. But he does think that you have a duty to develop your talents, though. Okay. To benefit other people, right? Mm. So. Like a, you know, know, musician, perhaps. Great example. But the athlete one isn't bad either. Um, But. Kant thinks that the only thing that's good without qualification is a goodwill. He has this quote where he's like, it shines like a jewel. It's, it's, oh, yeah. it's like, sorry, it's Kant. It's like a, a diamond in the rough. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> Aladdin. <laughs> yeah. So, well, what does he mean by that? Yeah, he means something like this. So, let's say that you see something, there's a baby in the street, and some guy picks up the baby, and the, you know, the car drives by and says, oh, what a hero, right? But it turns out, 
that the guy didn't want to save the baby. He was actually a notorious cannibal. He was going to eat the child, and that's why he picked up the baby. Have you seen that commercial for Amber Alert? No. I'm thinking of the Drake and Josh episode, though, where the guy eats monkeys. (laughs) (laughs) What kind of a sick man eats a monkey? That's a good point. (laughs) But there's a new Amber Alert commercial out, and it's like this normal-looking lady, and Mm -hmm. she's with who you assume is her daughter, and there's like a scary gentleman in like a motorcycle outfit. And then a guy with a hoodie on. Turns out she was the kidnapper. That reminds me of when I was a young scout. I was, I was in boy, I was, I was in a Cub Scout still. And we had the police come to do a presentation. And the officers asked, what do bad people look like? What do criminals look like? And everyone was saying it. And they were just describing people from the ghetto, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then I felt so proud. And I, I realized the answer. And I was last night, I said, everybody else. Oh. And yeah, I didn't, I didn't get a literal pat on the back. But the guy said, yep, that's right. Philosopher since age 10. You betcha. Mom can testify to that. <laughs> um, uh, let's, let's pause right here and we can recap. Or not recap, we can start a new one. And we're back. Hey, do do the crows. Okay, hear the crows. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> Philosophy. <laughs> so, in that example with the guy who saves the baby, right? Yeah. Well, Kant would say is something like this. Well, look, I mean, you did a good action. Like, obviously, it's better that the baby doesn't die. But we can't say that his action is moral because that's not what he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. He actually wanted to do something immoral. So in other words, Kant would argue, it's got to be the case that what makes actions moral or immoral, first of all, you have to take the will, what you want to bring about, into account. And the only thing that's absolutely good is the will, because you can do all kinds of things that are good by accident or without knowing what you're doing. So Kant's not going to say that if you visit your friend in the hospital and he's sick and you know, it's not out of a goodwill. It's just because, you know, he's your friend and you feel good about it. He's not going to say, well, it's like, like, you shouldn't do that, right? That's bad. He's just saying, well, mm-hmm. yeah, but it's moral if you go to visit him because it's good to visit and you know and you recognize that it's your duty to visit your friends when they're sick in the hospital, you know? I feel like sometimes I, I do actions, though, and my mind's are playing through all the different scenarios or reasonings. And one of them sometimes is it's a benefit to me. Yeah, and, well, I feel, and I feel bad about that sometimes. Yeah, I mean, some people might criticize Kant that he doesn't take enough into account. Mm-hmm. But this is a basis for deontology, is that it's duty, it's rules. Mm-hmm. Eh, duty, more specifically, that you're following what you know you should do. That's what's right. It's not a feeling, it's not that you're trying to be a good person, but it's that it's the duty. That's what I will say to do. also, if you're just do the right thing, even if it's not a hundred percent, you know, just, you know, not selfish, you know, yeah. maybe it's like 20% selfish or even 80% selfish. It's probably still a good thing. I think yeah. it's, it's probably, it's still probably net positive. See, like, well, we're going to talk about ideas like that oh, real okay. soon. So, but Kant's got a really good idea of how do we know we're moral? Well, that's the extent to which we follow the duty the moral law when we act out of respect to the moral law we recognize what it is and then we act towards it i mean one criticism that you can think out of the gate is wait a second every time i do something i have to go this through this calculation process right and think 
well would this produce a contradiction blah 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 it's like i don't have time for that this is a strength of virtue ethics right it's like that. no i see someone in need i don't think well do i recognize that there's a duty to help should, people should I in need? post it on facebook and ask <laughs> if i should do this first <laughs> <laughs> oh geez coming up a field day with facebook i feel like sometimes people look to social media to see if things are morally correct or incorrect yeah well Again, this just has to do with moral beliefs, not what makes something good or bad, right? right? Yeah. But no, that's, that's a little bit of observation that there's a lot of like, oh, come on, man, you already know what you need to do. Mm -hmm. So Kant, by the way, doesn't think that there are contradictions, at least in the groundwork to the metaphysics of morals. Ah, what a title. He doesn't seem to think that there are going to be contradictions. So there's a famous example. You might have heard of it. And he says, yeah, if there's an action murderer comes to your door and says, hey, is, is Kyle here? You can't lie. You're supposed to tell the truth because, well, it's your duty to tell the truth, right? A lot mm -hmm. of people just look at that and say, you're kidding me. If I'm in Hitler's Germany and I'm hiding Jews and the Nazis come knocking at the door, I'm not going to say, yeah, I'm hiding Jews, you know, <laughs> and, and so on, right? So that just, yeah, a lot of people think that's just not going to get off the ground. But there's been a lot of good things that have come out of it. I mean, Kant, he's got three different ways of stating the categorical imperative. And we just don't have time to give the categorical, categorical imperative justice. I suggest that you go online and read about it, but um, there are different principles of it. So I'm just going to read off some of them. So the first is the principle of the law of nature. If you can form a moral law without contradiction, that is like you should help people when in need, mm -hmm. then it's a valid moral law. Second is the principle of ends. You should never treat anyone as a means to an end, but always as an end in and of themselves, right? Okay. So this is great, by the way. So Kant's like, yeah, slavery, no question about it. Slavery's wrong. Colonization is wrong. You really, you can't treat people as a means to an end. Everyone you have to respect as a moral agent who has the same rationality as you. And this is a really good way for, to get human rights. Like these are the kinds of ideas that gave us, and we're in the air of founding, and more or less writing these things slightly after the founding of the United States. But this is how you get the UN Charter of Universal Rights, where you mm -hmm. say, yeah, you just can't treat, you can't treat people in certain ways because they are ends in and of themselves. Right. Things get a little weird, though. Like, I, I'm reading a, a a book by Kant, The Metaphysics of Morals, and he's and he seems to cast a skeptical eye on selling your hair, for instance. He's like, mm, I think you're treating yourself as a bit of an end, and it's like, wait, really? Cutting your hair and selling it? But can you cut your hair for style, for instance? Why even have an opinion on it? Hey, I know, <laughs> but it's, it's like, well, if you take it too far, it's like, well, no, Kant, you're asking us to take it this far. There, right. So, also the third is the principle of autonomy. So act so that your will can be universalized so that your action applies in any circumstance without creating a contradiction. Um, I don't know if that's possible. And Kant, in this book I'm reading, he seems to think that, well, you can talk about these principles, but it's not clear if you can apply them in every kind of way. So I don't know if that's a backtracking per se, so much as he's talking about the applicability. I don't know. I'm not a scholar on these things, obviously. But there's a way around it. Kant doesn't think that, there's an ex that there are any exceptions, but uh, a couple hundred, I think a hundred or so years later, maybe more like 150. Are these years later categories also a means to an end for well, him? Well, they're the, so it's. I mean, can we also turn that around to on on himself too? No, because he's selling books the, on the, it. Well, <laughs> he actually talks in his. It's called the um, the philosophy of right, um, where he talks about why copyright infringement in books is wrong, which I think is pretty funny. Huh. Which, you know, he, he was a, a professor and a philosopher. And, yeah. You know, that's how he made his money. 
So he means that you shouldn't use people as ends. Okay. So slavery is a good example, but also if he, I, th- I believe he gives this example of the groundwork. Let's say that your husband, your wife is sick, you can't afford medicine, and so you go to the pharmacist. Now, you could say, hey, I'm here for a delivery. And uh, yeah, pickup order, right? But Khan says, no, you're using the pharmacist as a means to an end. And that is, what's the end is for you to get your medicine. Even if it's a good thing that you want to make sure that your wife gets better, right? Mm-hmm. You're still just using the pharm- You're not, you're using the pharmacist as a means to an end. And you're not respecting his autonomy, his moral autonomy. So what does Khan think that you, or, you know, another way would just be stealing it, right? That would be even more so just treating it as means to an end. It's right. okay. He has to make money too. He has, he has his own sick people and so on, right? So what does Khan think that you should do? Well, you should just talk to him and say, listen. My wife is sick. I do not have the money. And then you give him the choice, right, to do what's rationally, you know, so he can figure out what his duty is and so on. Interesting. Yeah. Now, granted, uh, that might seem a little naive. I tend to think that people are actually pretty good. I don't know if... if, if I think so. Yeah. I mean, the problem is that I don't know if it's like the 1800s where you just got your uh, corner store apothecary, right? Uh, if you go if you go to a Walgreens, it's like, look, I'd really like to help you, but like I'll get fired if I do, you know? Yes, maybe that wouldn't work anywhere, but I think that theory, just in general, works quite a bit. Like, would you give a homeless person money? Yeah, and so let's apply that real yeah. quick. So Kant thinks like, hey, what's your duty? Well, I should help people in need, right? Because some people think if you don't give them money, you're actually helping them because then they won't they won't go buy drugs. Yeah. And if you're the person who's on drugs, then what you should do, I mean, if you're on drugs, you're not thinking rationally and can't think that that's immoral, right? Because you're treating yourself as a means to the end of just feeling pleasure, right? Mm-hmm. And not exercising your rationality. Right. So that's an example of, yeah, you can use yourself as an end to a mean as well. So this applies to other people, it applies to yourself as well. Like, if you can't tell, I think there is something respectable about this. You know, there's yeah. a lot of, well, respect is the key word. You respect the moral law, you respect individuals. There's a lot of, things in here to admire it's just one it seems a little severe and two the applicability seems to be a little difficult but let's talk about that one Kant might say well listen if every time someone who appears to be in need comes to you asking for money you give money have you created a contradiction like is the world going to end is society going to fall apart well no are you going to go bankrupt are you going to go bankrupt um no i mean i don't i haven't been approached that many times but it was like you did it every, every single time. time. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I like I said, I haven't gone bankrupt. Now, right. this is not every time you see one, but every time one asks you, right? Mm-hmm. And um, are you treating yourself and the individual as a means to an end? Well, if you recognize that it's your duty, you're not just doing it to feel good, but you're saying, no, I recognize this man. You're in public. People can see you. You're alone. No, well, <laughs> those aren't going to really, I guess, infringe on it. But, you know, if you're saying, I want to look good. Mm-hmm. then that's that instantly that is okay you're not doing this out of a moral action right right you're not doing this out of a respect for duty and understanding of what your duty is and then that's the other question um let's see are you creating a contradiction no okay yeah, you can give it to them now if you're the person you're and you're thinking yeah i don't want to work i don't want to get my life together so i'll just beg for money Kant will say oh hold on you're lying to other people doing this so that you can live a bad lifestyle if everyone were to do this no one could could live yeah this is an immoral action so you might already be able to tell something and that's that the the categorical imperative and Kant's system of thinking about things is a lot better at telling you what not to do than what to do Mm -hmm. 
that's a bit of a criticism. I think that there may be ways around that. I'm not familiar hey, with them. Hey, one side of the coin, though, it's pretty, still pretty good. Yes. I like that, that's a huge chunk. Yes. Like so I feel like most things we've talked about so far are like, I don't know, 20%. Uh-huh. Right? Well, there are some other problems. So, for instance, well, let's talk about this one guy. So, um, a guy named W.D. Ross, he came up with the idea of prima facie duties. Along with something called prima facia duties. Yeah, um, it's Latin. Okay. Uh, I think it means at the first phase, basically. Um, sorry, guys, my Latin's a little rusty. I'm gonna be working on that soon. But basically, Kant thinks that moral duties don't contradict, but they absolutely do. Like we we know this. Like, well, should I tell the truth or should I help my family? And Kant's like, well, it should be like that. It's like, look, if I go to every drugstore and they all say no. I'm going to get the the medicine for my sick family, right? Right. So uh, the lying one, right? You're hiding Jews in Nazi Germany, and they say, it's like, well, you have a duty not to lie. It's like, yeah, I also have a duty to help people. I think that's more important than telling the truth to a corrupt government, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So W.D. Ross gets around this. He comes up with some duties, and he says, well, we have a moral intuition. Here here are the duties, by the way. Fidelity, reparation, gratitude, non-injury, slash non Maleficence, beneficence, self-improvement, and justice. So he says, yeah, these are all duties. You should, these are things that you should do to be a just, or to do justice, to be loyal, not to hurt other people, to improve yourself. These are just, we all just recognize that these are true. And you have this moral intuition, this feeling, this understanding even. This kind of observation, perhaps, mm-hmm. that when the when the Gestapo knocks at the door, you think, yeah, the most important thing right now is justice. Or, mm, I don't know, would it be justice? Let's go with non-injury. <laughs> I don't want to hurt other people. That's more important than my duty to honesty right mm-hmm. now. Bam, there you go. Now, some people criticize that because it feels like it kind of guts the exceptionless nature of Kant's version of his ethics where it's like, yeah, but I thought you could tell me what to do in every situation. Right. So that's why some people don't like that. Here's some other criticisms of Kant's version as well as I think Ross's. It seems like a bit of an oversimplification. Like you just mentioned, whenever you do something moral, it seems like there's a lot of things going into play. Right. There's a lot. Yeah. yeah. And that it's not always clear because you don't always know what the consequences are. But mm-hmm. Kant seems almost to hand wave the consequences of it too much. Right. Um, we're going to talk about another group pretty soon called utilitarians, and they believe that the moral consequence is the most important thing, uh, among other things, I guess. We'll talk about the complications, but they're going to say, well, listen, your blind obedience to rules isn't focusing on the consequences enough. And if you're not producing good consequences, what, what's the point? Mm. You know, can't think that that's not actually going to... He's like, well, if you follow your duty, good things are going to result. Of course they would. Um, there's some other problems. So are the mentally handicapped, the young, the old, animals, do they figure into our moral obligations? Hmm. So crows? <laughs> so for instance, um, this is really great among equals, right? We're all rational and we're in something that Kant calls the kingdom of ends. We're all legislators. We're giving ourselves these laws as we're discovering our duty through rational power, and we all figure this out. Yeah, what if you don't? What if you don't have rationality? So kittens, right? They don't have 
much capacity for rationality. Certainly not for they moral judgment. They probably do. They just choose not to. Look, <laughs> <laughs> well, we all know what cats are like, right? Yeah. <laughs> so if humans aren't really as autonomous, meaning that we act by laws in the way that Kant thinks, it's going to be hard to get the ontology off the ground because religion, culture, the way that we're brought up, mm-hmm. these may be more important than what we rationally think our right. duty should be. You know, mm-hmm. and they might affect what we're going to think of as our duty, and so on. So, what else? Oh, and I like this one. Uh, so I like deontology, but I also like virtue ethics. And virtue ethics says, I think you're, I think you're missing the point, Kant. So yes, it's important that we do the right thing, but isn't it more important that we live virtuously? If you have to think about what my moral duty is every time I make an action, am I really a good person? The virtue ethic ethicist oh, thinks so you're that you're wasting a lot of time well and kant seems to think that i don't know what he thinks I, i'm reading through it right now and yeah. figuring out he, he, he writes one book he says this is the intro and he says oh by the way i'll get something out and then he does so we know and people don't like it as much as the first one generally we don't have to talk about that though but you know i think that there's something right in that if i don't think about to help the old lady across the street i just do it and it's like it's nothing to me in the sense that Oh, of course I would have done that. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. there's something intuitively, I think, appealing about that, where you're like, yeah, it's just a part of me to act that way. Yeah, holding the door open for someone. Another great example. It's so simple, you don't even think about yeah. it. People do it all the time. Help a dog out of a ditch. You know, it's like, hmm. hmm. Well, if I were a dog in a ditch, <laughs> would I want to be helped out? Well, I'm not unless treating myself as an end. Uh, yeah, uh, unless That's it's Millie. Jeez, <laughs> Millie. Um, yeah, she'll get her. She'll find her way out. Yeah. So, these are some of the. These are some of the potential problems. Kant did think that the consequences were important, but Kant was also a believer in God, and I think he basically thought, yeah, God will take care of it. And so if you're not religious, then you think, um, I'm not so sure, man. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, any other questions about uh, Kant's version of deontology? Not really. It, I, I think so far, that's probably the simplest one to understand. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it may be complicated in application at times. Yeah, but, but do it's what is right. Pretty, Let the consequences follow. It's pretty we sing that at church. Yeah, yeah. Like and other ones maybe just complicate themselves. Yeah. Well, let's let's go to I think what's um, the last important one. There are basically three three contenders for what uh, moral philosophers think are the the best theories of ethics. The trifecta. The trifecta, and that's. Virtue ethics, which we talked about, deontology, which we just covered, and here's the last one: consequentialism. Consequentialism. Now, yeah, it has to do with consequences. If you can't How does that tell. translate into other languages? Oh boy, I think it's German consequentialismus. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the most famous version is one that's called utilitarianism, and we'll talk about that. So utilitarianism was developed by a guy named Jeremy Bentham, and a lot of people thought, mm, I don't know about that. Is and, any good thing made by Jeremy? <laughs> By the way, Jeremy Bentham is still around. Oh no way! Yeah, he got his. He was a bit of a odd duck, and he got his body. He got his body um, embalmed. It's entombed in University College London with a wax head, and what? so yeah, he's present for every staff meeting that the that the department has. Like he's reeled in there. Oh, he's he's like in a glass thing. Oh, but he what? never votes. 
<laughs> I wonder why. So one of my professors got to go to University College London for a conference, and he got to go and you know, pay his respects and say hi. And so he's <laughs> a weird guy. That's so weird. Um, but utilitarianism and democracy have come up hand in hand. And that's important to note, is that what utilitarianism focuses on is let's do the greatest good for the greatest number. Mm-hmm. The greatest happiness for the greatest number. These are these are the catchphrase, catch bingo. And so it's really no surprise that the rise of democracy coincides with the rise of utilitarianism. And Bentham thought, like, hey, don't tell me about these stupid ways of figuring out your duty. I'll tell you what's good and what's bad. What's going to produce the best consequences? What's going to produce the most pleasure? The most good things for people? What are the end results? Yes. Now, some people thought his formulation was too simple, and um, about a generation later, uh, one of Bentham's students, he raised his son as a genius, and what do I mean by that? I mean, he started teaching his son Greek at age three, and at okay. that, when I heard about that, Henley was three. Mm-hmm. I just, I remember interacting with her and thinking, hmm, I'm taking Greek right now. How did he do it? This is impossible. And you can read in his autobiography, he's very clear, he says, yeah, I was reading Demosthenes at 11, like, didn't understand any of it but i could read it and you know he started learning latin at the age of five i think it was Hmm. and he gets old and absolutely depressed his dad wouldn't let him play with other kids so he's not really properly socialized he's he's suicidal he reads the poetry of wordsworth and realizes that life is good and then just spends a lot of time doing all kinds of things i mean he's he's an early feminist and he campaigns for the rights of women right since women are people right in case you didn't know and they have things that they want. And so if you're utilitarian, you say they absolutely figure into the moral calculation. Mm-hmm. So you could imagine deontology being there for women's rights. And it was, but also utilitarianism. And utilitarians are for the rights of women. Anyway, he writes his versions. I guess we don't have to get into it. But John Stuart Mill is this fellow's name. He's one of the most famous philosophers in the English-speaking uh, world. He's very important to the development. So what's the idea? Well, do you remember the example with the baby? Yes. The cannibal yep. grabs the baby. Well, the utilitarian would say, yeah, produced a good effect. That's moral. Let's say the cannibal has his way. And they say, yeah, it's a bad effect. You know, you've destroyed some happiness, you know. So you might be saying, well, wait a second. Are you really telling me that all this boils down to is, is this going to produce good consequences or bad consequences? And my answer is, basically. There are lots of different ways of thinking about but this. But you won't know until it happens. Yeah, but. It's almost too late then. Well, here's one of the criticisms, right? It's like, yeah, but how do you know? And the, I think you'd say, Sharon would say, yeah. I mean, yeah, this might get complicated, but you're not really going to tell me that you don't know that saving a baby is going to produce a good consequence. Well, also, depending on what it is, it could take thousands of years. Yeah. You know, depending on. Yeah, but saving a baby. About it. Yeah, saving a baby. Yeah. And I think they're going to point to things like that. It's like, we're trying yeah. to maximize utility, mm-hmm. happiness. And so. So the. Um, Jeremy Bentham thinks like, yeah, if you don't like Homer, who cares? If, if, if it's going to make everyone more happy to throw away all of Homer and destroy it, let's do it. John Stuart Mill is going to say, whoa, 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 hold on. Uh, there's a way of, of figuring out what are greater pleasures and lesser pleasures. And so this is an important difference is that Bentham's version of utilitarianism is, is a little crude. Where he says, yeah, it's like. Also really depends on the time. So this is where relativism becomes an interesting factor. And that is, well, who says what's good and what's bad? I'm going to reveal my cards right now. I don't like utilitarianism. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of reasons I don't like it. It just I just can't see it as being true. By the way, if we're talking about Bentham, so this is good for the majority. What if what about the minority? They're screwed. Yeah. So I think no, util, 
utilitarians like Mill are going to have a very different view. But if you're a Bentham utilitarian, it's like, yeah, I mean, there aren't as many black people in the United States as there are white people. And uh, it's it's producing the greatest utility. I mean, people are happier. There's more money if black people are slaves. So slavery is okay as long as it's not the majority. And again, everyone, I, yeah, the look on your face, it's like that. <clears throat> Disavow. That is not right. You know, you know? We are anti-slavery. <laughs> so Mill's going to have a, a different idea because Bentham is pretty... So what is the good? What is utility? These are going to be huge problems for utilitarians, right? It's, another big problem is going to be the lines you draw. So grace happiness for the grace number. Well, So we just talked about one. What's the grace happiness? Another really important one is what's the grace number of people in the United States, in the state of Utah, in the northern hemisphere, in the world, uh, why is it just people? Why not animals too? So do we have to factor ants and beetles in? Now this might be a little, this might be reaching because I think some utilitarians would say, no, just let's just talk about people. Mm -hmm. but okay, fair enough. <laughs> but what if the people are dumb, so, so to speak? So let's if, let's go back to the grace. Are happy to kill all the bison? Yeah, yeah. Or it's to for the great, it's for the greater good. Yeah. Of America. <laughs> and what is that greater good? It doesn't matter. Like, we just we just really want to, you know? Yeah. So let's go back to that. So that's the greatest number. Let's go to the greatest happiness or the greatest pleasure. So we don't like Bentham, I think it's safe to say. Yeah. It. But Mill has a different idea. Sorry, where says, buddy. You missed the mark. It's okay. You can tell him that <laughs> if you go to University of College London. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he's important for a lot of reasons. And again, keep in mind, everyone, I'm painting with very broad strokes. These are very complex theories. Mm -hmm. And very smart people believe in them for very good reasons. But also, very smart people don't. I think it's okay to hear different ideas. Yes. It opens your mind. But embalming yourself is a weird move. So it's worth talking about, though, that Bentham really wanted to do this to minimize suffering and maximize happiness. Mm -hmm. This is really a way to help the poor. That's what he thought. And he did a lot of reforms. He was an important reformer to improve the life of the average man in Britain at the time. So mm -hmm. we have that to thank for him. So let's talk about John Stuart Mill. Mill thought that we could figure out what's a greater pleasure and what's a lesser pleasure by doing a kind of calculation. So he says, let's, so he uses an example of poetry, which I mean, I agree with, but maybe your listeners um, haven't read as much poetry. That's okay. They can repent. But the one that my professor used was falling in love. And what Mill basically says is like, look, if you have a pleasure and there's no other amount of pleasure that could replace that, that's how you know it's a greater pleasure. And so our professor used the example of ice cream and falling in love, where he says, there's no amount of ice cream where you'd say, yes, I would take that ice cream instead of falling in love. And of course, mm -hmm. the joke was at the time, say, I don't know, professor, <laughs> like how much ice cream are we talking? Right. <laughs> is this Graham Canyon? <laughs> um. Uh, some people criticize it as being a little ad hoc, like, wait, really? That's how we're supposed to figure out what are, what are the greater pleasures and the lesser pleasures? I'll just, I'll grant it for now. That doesn't seem terrible to me. Like, it mm -hmm. just seems like the, the aesthetic experience of listening to great music is better than all the buffet trips in the world. So he says that you can figure out what are the greater and worse pleasures or the higher and the lower pleasures yeah you also can't live a life with just the greatest pleasures yeah they're only great because of the ones that were not so great right 
So, you know, you can you can figure that out. And so, yeah, you're not going to throw away all of Homer. You're going to protect individual rights because that's going to be the greatest thing in the long run mm-hmm. is to protect individual rights. So no slavery, right. right? Rights for women, rights for everyone, because I think at that time in the UK, not all men could vote yet. Uh, there were still franchise restrictions. Mm-hmm. So this is an advantage that it shares with deontology. And that is like, hey, if you're a human being, you're equal, right? There's no greater or lesser. Utilitarianism is blind in this respect. I don't know. That could be a bit of a thing. Like, hey, if if 51% of the population says to destroy the other 49%. But there are other Majority things. rule. Sorry, yeah. guys. Yeah. So also, these kinds of calculations, that could be supported by science. Like, you could objectively figure out, well, what do people like? What do they prefer? You can also take account of future generations, right? And and Mm -hmm. here's a good argument for taking care of the environment. It's like, hey, if we don't preserve Yellowstone, future generations can't have this objectively good pleasure of enjoying beautiful American nature. Right. Um, Here are some problems. How about the family? It just seems the case that family relationships are important. And so it's like, so remember how I said at the beginning, yeah, it seems to me that because you're my brother-in-law, I'm going to treat you in a morally different way than I would if you're just some random guy in the street they don't know. Right. Um, other things we'd already talked about, and that is, yeah, how do you predict? So we talked about problems with the greatest number. We talked about problems with the greatest happiness, but a problem with prediction, and this just goes for any moral one. So utilitarians might shrug and say, well, the ontologist, virtue ethicists, how, how are your theories going? You know, like, yeah, but how do you know what your duty is? Like, it has to be on the consequences, right? We're just biting the bullet and saying, it's all about the consequences, period. You mm-hmm. know, I should mention that economists are often utilitarians. Um, really? Yeah, very often. And, you know, the rise uh-huh. of economics goes well with utilitarianism. Um, yeah. Some of the founders of utilitarianism were economists. So, I mean, I know one. every time I do a new group, process or policy or, or activity some people will not like it yeah they may not hate it but some people may not like it and doesn't it seem true that when we think about the what we think about what should i do something that we think about is how will this affect people yeah i do think about that often right and so again it's not just because john stuart mill was a big dumb dumb right mm-hmm. and and he he was thinking about a very important part of how we make moral decisions and that's thinking about consequences of the action i think we all understand that the consequences of an action are important how we figure out what to do and what not to do Hmm. got 30 seconds yeah well again keep it going or do you want to wrap it up oh I, i think we can conclude okay final thoughts go yeah, again, painting with broad brushstrokes. There's tons of info, good information on the internet, the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy. There's a lot here, and if this interests you, there's a lot to be said for it. And so go research. There are great podcasts and great internet websites and books that you can figure out uh, more about these. Don't take my word as authoritative. All right, thanks, everyone, and enjoy your lunch. <laughs>